You're listening to Terrible Omens. I'm Elaine Gray. Chapter 10 Darren and I were vomited out into the chiropractic world during a time of great transition. Chiropractic, as a profession, was in the midst of an identity crisis. Honestly, I'm not sure that it's ever not had an identity crisis, but that's a story for another day entirely. Chiropractic jobs were hard to come by at the time, and they were even harder to keep. Personally, I never lost any of them. I just couldn't abide staying at some of them. Most of the time, the money wasn't nearly enough to be worth the hours I had to work or the devastating toll the job took on my dignity. Sometimes the billing practices were sketchy. Other times, I was asked to do things that were in direct opposition to everything I had been taught or to the basic standards of ethical behavior that any idiot could figure out even without a six-digit education. I'm not saying that all chiropractors are shysters. Not at all. But just like haircuts and cups of coffee, there are good ones and bad ones, and you never really know what you've got until you try it. The other options at the time were to open a new practice from scratch or to buy a practice from another doctor who was either getting out of the game for some reason or who had expanded too much and needed to trim the proverbial overhead fat to survive. Both of these options were risky and expensive, and either way we went, it was going to be a long and challenging journey towards stability. Over the next 18 months, Darren and I moved five times, starting with the move into my parents' spare bedroom right after we fled Verona. I was desperate to settle down and get to work. I wanted stability. I wanted security. I wanted to work hard and reap the benefits of our efforts. Most of all, I wanted to do all of it together with Darren. It was the two of us against the world. We were strong. We were together. And that was it. Darren was less focused. As we were starting out in Charlotte, he thought he wanted to start from scratch. Then he wanted to buy. And then he just wanted a job where he could earn some money. No matter what the offer was on the table, he was never satisfied with it. All the while, he was on the phone with Earl almost every other day, and every time he was about to make a decision, he got a phone call from Verona that would end up derailing the whole thing. That's how the wandering started. I wanted him to be happy. He had given up so much for me. I knew this because he told me every time he got off the phone with his dad. It might have been guilt, or maybe it was just what I thought was the path of least resistance. Either way, I let him choose where we looked for jobs and practices. I thought that if we could just get him settled, I would make it work for me too. So Darren led the way to the future. He bounced us around the mid-Atlantic seaboard on the hunt for the perfect job or the perfect practice to buy for over a year, and I dutifully followed. Add that in with the general dearth of viable opportunities, and all that's left is a Chevy Blazer with over 100,000 miles on it, massive credit card debt, and two six-figure student loans along with the loans we had each taken from our respective parents. I thought we were going to settle down when Darren took a job in a gym outside of Philadelphia. He was supposed to work on a contract for a while and then buy the place outright for himself over time. It wasn't my first choice. It wasn't even my fifth or sixth choice, but it was the best chance I had at the time. Darren's ego was fragile, and I didn't think he could stand much resistance to his latest big idea, so we packed everything up and moved. It was Darren's first real job. Three weeks later, I started my own job in a tiny office close to our apartment. 
Ten days after that, 9-11 happened. I can't say that 9-11 directly changed things for us, but it definitely set a tone. It took six months for Darren to quit his contract. He said it wasn't good enough and he was wasting his time. He wasn't entirely wrong about it. It was a terrible office, but at least it was a job. I thought that it was worth something. He quit anyway and spent the next month watching TV and playing snood on our desktop. We were too broke for a PlayStation. That's when he applied for a job in Minnesota. That's right. I said Minnesota. Because why not Minnesota, right? He went after that job in Minnesota with vigor. He even got interviews lined up for me. We took personality tests. We flew out for our interviews. We sat through the sales pitch for their practice management system and how they were going to conquer chiropractic the way McDonald's had conquered fast food. We applied for and paid for our shiny new Minnesota state licenses. We shopped for apartments and put down deposits. And then Darren called it all off. No offense to Minnesota, but I was really relieved. I was several grand deeper in the hole for that little adventure, but definitely relieved. It's cold up there. That meant it was back to TV and snood for Darren while he waited for his next big idea. It was back to work for me. Luckily, I hadn't quit my job. It wasn't enough to cover all of our bills, but it was better than nothing. And then Darren found his dream job. And it was back in Pittsburgh. In all of the towns, in all of the possible places we could have gone, the only job for him, according to him, was back there. It wasn't a discussion. It was a decision, and a unilateral one at that. Darren went home to his parents' house and made a tentative peace with Charlene, got the job, and told me to come and join him because it was more expensive for me to keep working at my job than it was for me to quit. Sadly, he wasn't wrong. But stepping one foot into Charlene's house was a terrible idea, and the idea of moving in was even worse. It was a pivotal moment, and I knew it as it was happening. If I chose to go with him, I was honoring my wedding vows. I was choosing our life over Charlene's insanity. If I chose to leave, I could start over again before I lost any more time, but it would be even more of a struggle. We had already taken the long way around to nowhere. While all of our friends from school had been building their careers and securing their futures, we were driving around in circles like a couple of idiots and digging ourselves a massive debt hole. With those thoughts banging around in my skull, it really seemed like I didn't have any other viable options. It didn't matter how much PCSD, to be clear, that's post-Charlene stress disorder, I had every time I heard Darren say yins or mention the Steelers, or any time I saw a spiral-bound college-ruled paper. It didn't matter that Charlene kept that green notebook, a.k.a. my personal journal, as leverage and had an unknown number of copies hidden in multiple places that only she, and probably Wallcat, knew. It didn't matter that she kept the thread of the notebook alive in every way she could think of so that I never knew when, if, or how it would come up in any given situation. Despite all of that, and as insane as it was, I went back to Verona. I circled right back around to where the whole mess started and moved back into Charlene's house. I chose my marriage. I chose Darren. Ugh. 
On the upside, we were better at the physical moving part this time. We had moved so many times that we had it down to a fairly efficient system. This time, we loaded everything directly into the basement through the cellar door rather than bringing it into the main part of the house. We thought maybe Charlene would feel less like my undies were her undies that way, and that we might all get along with less turmoil. The outside door to the cellar seemed smaller, and inside the cellar seemed danker than I remembered. The overwhelming sense of shame and inadequacy I felt in returning to this vortex of despair was exacerbated by Charlene, who had perched herself at the corner stair railing like a gargoyle troll and heckled us as we lugged our things off the truck. Darren, she squawked. Don't scratch up my floor. She flicked cigarette ash over the stair rail like she was punctuating a sentence. I kept my head down and kept moving, trying hard to remember that I had chosen this path of my own free will. It was up to me to make the best of it, and after all, it was her house. The concrete floor of the basement was weathered and pitted. It hadn't been sealed or patched in at least two decades. As we tromped in and out over the floor, I occupied my mind by tracing every pit and crack. I also thought it might be useful in the event of a surprise post-load-in inspection. Line after line, chunk after missing chunk, I traced them all as we hefted and lugged our entire material lives inside. After the last box had been moved in and the truck was on its way back to the rental lot, I sat down at the foot of the stairs that led up to the kitchen. The metal staircase gave a familiar squeak as it shuddered under my weight. I closed my eyes and took in a long, deep breath. The moldy basement smell was the same. The muffled TV sounds through the floor above my head were the same. I stood up and opened my eyes. The boxes and the furniture shoved in the center basement room looked exactly the same. This was all exactly the fucking same. This was really happening. This was a nightmare come to life. A wave of nausea flooded through my gut as I thought back to the last time I was here. The anger, the crying, the notebook, the hurt, the privacy invasion, and the torment. The panic flooded in next. My mind started cataloging all of the things in all of the boxes and where everything that was mine might be. This was a powder keg, and the last time it blew up in my face. Once again, my whole life was in her house with no foreseeable end date in sight. I was angry and tired and completely freaking out. Why did I let this happen? Why was Darren even suggesting this? The more I thought about it, the more furious and terrified I became. As I scanned over the piles of our belongings, my eyes glazed over. My legs started to tremble. The floor beneath me started to vibrate. As I looked around the room, I saw all of the boxes and the furniture start to shake and crash together. It was like an earthquake was happening right in front of my eyes. The concrete floor between my feet split apart into a wide crack. The crack spread across the entire basement floor and everything we owned started to tumble, box by box, into the divide. I felt my feet being pulled apart and my legs starting to give way. My first thought was, shit, I'm going to get blamed for this, followed by a second thought of, hallelujah. With that, I relaxed into it and let go. I felt a rush of cool air and everything went dark. What are you doing, Darren said, walking in through the outer door. He turned the lights back on at the switch. Sorry I turned the lights off. I didn't know you were still down here. 
I blinked rapidly, trying to regain my composure. Seriously, are you all right, he said. What the hell are you doing? Nothing, no, I said. I mean, yes, I'm fine. I was fine, and also overwhelmingly disappointed that I hadn't actually been swallowed up and taken out by a freak sinkhole. Okay, dinner's ready. Ma made sausage rolls for dinner. He walked past me and headed up the squeaky stairs. Hey, is that a new crack in the floor? Put a box over it or something. Ma's gonna lose it if she sees it, and then I'll never hear the end of it. It was there before. I noticed it when we started today, I said, as I continued to stare at the small crack where the sinkhole had started. Well, put a box over it anyway, he said, as he stomped up the rest of the stairs. No need to tempt fate. He turned off the lights as he walked past the switch. The darkness returned, but it wasn't the same. Oh, sorry, he said as he flipped the light switch on again and closed the cellar door behind him. For a second, I was free. It had been so vivid. I felt like it was really all over. For one tiny second, the lights were permanently out. It was downright peaceful. There was no Charlene, no Darren, no chiropractic. It was just me, floating in an endless void, surrounded by all of the silly things that I had collected over my life. It was quiet, and it was painless. It wasn't at all like I had imagined dying would be. A second later, I was back. Darren was there. I was still in the basement. Charlene was already the topic of conversation. Another second later, I was really disappointed that I was back. I knew this had to be a terrible omen of something. Maybe this is what a real nervous breakdown was like. Or maybe I was having a stroke. I wanted to remember everything about that moment so I could go back and analyze it later with a clearer head. It would have made an amazing journal entry, but as you can imagine, that certainly wasn't an option. Darren had demanded that I never keep one again. Charlene's voice sliced through the floor. She wanted to know what I was doing in the cellar. That was my cue. If I waited any longer, it would only make things worse. I plodded up the stairs, leaving the crack Darren had pointed out uncovered. I don't think it was an intentional act of defiance. It could have merely been an oversight due to the shock. It certainly wasn't due to my excitement over sausage rolls. Nevertheless, up the stairs I went. Every day that followed, I returned to the basement and sat on the squeaky bottom step. I would scan the piles of our stuff while I pondered the likelihood of a spontaneous sinkhole appearing in western Pennsylvania and traced the outline of the actual crack on the floor. By the second day, there was an old rug tossed crookedly over it. I was never sure who put it there. I only knew that every day I would straighten the rug out and every evening the rug would be crooked again. It seemed to me like a loose rug haphazardly situated at the bottom of the stairs was more off-putting than a twenty-year-old crack in the cement. But every day I would smooth and straighten the rug when I covered it back up before I walked away from it. My sinkhole vision had seemed so real. I had never experienced anything like that before. I had experienced plenty of daydreams in my life, but they were just flights of fancy for a temporarily restless mind. I had never had a daydream or a daymare where my perception of reality slipped so far that there was no obvious difference between reality and non-reality. It was only for a moment, but that moment was more than long enough. 
It left an indelible mark inside me, a crack in my head to match the one on the floor. Day after day, I revisited the cellar crack, and the sinkhole never returned. Eventually, I decided that the whole thing was just a transient reaction to an acute stressor. I didn't want to die. I wasn't suicidal. I didn't want to repeat what had happened before, and my stress was a product of my doubts about returning to this place and repeating the past. I had chosen my marriage over my own comfort, and I just didn't want to be there. All I could hope was that the sacrifice would pay off in the end. At the same time as all of that nonsense, I was looking for my own job. The sooner I went back to work, the sooner we could rent our own place, and the sooner I could get a little distance from Charlene's vortex of despair. I went about my days making calls, sending resumes, and talking to anyone who would let me in the door. I tried my best to contribute to the housework, too. I cleaned the kitchen, did laundry, scooped litter boxes, and vacuumed floors. I didn't really mind it that much. I would have done the same and more in my own space. It was Charlene that made it so unbearable. Whatever I did, it was never enough. She was almost always there, watching whatever I did, except for the mornings. She usually slept late, and I usually had a good four to five hours to myself each morning before she even thought about getting up. The rest of my time was spent cleaning up the aftermath of our time in Philly. With every move, the account transfers and cancellation fees seemed to get worse and worse. The costs of life as wandering doctors were adding up fast. As the days passed, the tension kept magnifying. Darren was at work during the days. I was alone in the house with Charlene and the constant threat of the notebook. I couldn't stand it. It was like psychological warfare. She had turned my words into a weapon that could easily destroy everything I was trying to build with Darren. For a while, I tried searching for it, but it was pointless. The copies I found were too easy. They were practically sitting out in the open. I knew that they were a trap so Charlene would know that I was looking for it and that I was snooping through her things. I gave up the search after I found the first five copies. She was fucking with me. I realized that even if I found the original, it would never be enough. It was impossible to know how many copies there were. Paper copies, digital file copies, transcription onto a series of stone tablets that she chiseled on every night and then buried somewhere in the backyard, maybe even in the tomato garden. It was impossible to know, and it really didn't matter anymore anyway. The worst of the damage had already been done. While my sinkhole never came back, my sleeping dreams started changing into bizarre nightmares. In my dreams, I would be in the middle of a random scene when suddenly I would just start swallowing things. As an example, my keys. One minute I would be holding my keys in my hand and the next I would pop them squarely into my mouth and swallow them down. I could feel them traveling through my esophagus and cutting off my airway. The panic would kick in. I would try to grab the keys before they were too far gone, but it was always too late. I couldn't stop it. I would look down at my body and see the keys gouging through my stomach and intestines, even ripping me open as it zigzagged through my guts and eventually turning my abdomen into bloody spaghetti. I would always wake up shaky and sweaty and thankfully all in one piece, but each time after I calmed myself down, a wave of melancholy and disappointment would hit me. 
It seemed a little odd that I was disappointed to be uneviscerated from within, but honestly, it's what I felt. Darren knew that it was happening. I woke up screaming most of the time, and he had a hard time sleeping through it. As instructed, I told Darren all about it instead of writing any of it down. Journaling was officially off-limits, of course. He would laugh and tell me I was weird. He also asked me not to wake him up during the night because he really needed to sleep. Night after night, the horrible dreams kept coming, and they always seemed to be the result of either my questionable choices or improbable natural disasters. I swallowed things like rusted nails and bottle caps and pens, and pins for that matter, depending upon what was around in that particular dream. Sometimes my teeth would crumble and I would feel the shards scrape through my body. I fell off shaking buildings, crumbling cliffs, and tumbled down unreasonably long flights of stairs. I always hit the bottom and I always just stayed there. The sinkhole showed up again a few times, but it was never like the first one. Instead of a peaceful void, I'd get stuck down into a deep hole with whatever was nearby at the time piled up on top. I never tried to get out, though. I just stayed there, buried and suffocating in my sinkhole, until I eventually woke up sweaty, scared, and inevitably disappointed. As time passed, my nightmares morphed back into daymares again. They were usually less violent, but definitely just as absurd. For example, one day I was washing the dishes at Charlene's sink. Rain was gently hitting the roof, leading a mesmerizing undercurrent to Charlene's repetitious heaving sighs. When Charlene sighed, it usually meant that she had something on her mind. It was her version of a conversation starter. She would sit and smoke and sigh. She would wander the house and smoke and sigh. She would pointedly straighten the already straight magazines, light her cigarettes with vaudevillian hand flourishes, and then sigh some more. She would sigh and sigh, louder and louder, until I would break and ask her if she was okay. It seemed like she lived for those moments. She would launch into a litany of complaints ranging from our things in the basement to where we parked the car at night to the neighbors to her fibromyalgia and her dumb doctors. Nothing was off-limits. She was free to say whatever bile-filled hate sputum her brain could hawk up, because, of course, I had asked. This time, I was determined not to react. I focused my attention on the feel of the dishes in my hands and the warmth of the water in the sink. I let the sound of the rain take over in my head. I relaxed into it. Soon, the roof faded away and I was outside, still at the sink in the kitchen, but gloriously outside. I could feel the raindrops falling on my head, and I tipped my head up to look at the sky. As I did, thoughts of my first-grade teacher flowed into my mind. She said that a turkey would die if you left it out in the rain. She said it would look up to see what was touching its head, and it would stay that way until the raindrops filled its little turkey nostrils and it drowned. Of course, I always thought it was a ridiculous story. It's important to note that Mrs. Topper was involuntarily institutionalized later on that same year, but in that moment I remembered that story with absolute clarity and I wondered. If I just tipped my head back a little farther, I felt the raindrops filling my nose as I held my breath and tried to let it happen. What are you doing? Darren's mother squawked, startling me out of the rain. I inhaled sharply and choked on my own saliva as I whipped my head up straight. 
I had been so far down in it that I had forgotten she was there. Now I was in a full-on saliva-induced coughing fit and couldn't make it stop. Holy shit, what's wrong with you? Didn't you hear me? She asked with disgust. I have been having a terrible day and you didn't even notice, she said angrily as she walked out of the room. I could hear her mumbling until she slammed her bedroom door. I gripped the edge of the sink to steady myself while I tried to settle my breath. I was clearly losing control of myself. I didn't know exactly what it meant, but I was certain that something had to change, and fast. The next day, change came all by itself. I got a job offer. It was a good one, too. It was exactly what I had wanted since the day we finished school. It was genuine hands-on chiropractic with functional rehab and decompression therapy in a clean professional building. There was no color therapy, no muscle testing of patients with slices of bread held on their chests, and no mandatory morning and afternoon prayer circles. It sounds crazy, I know, but it happens. It's kind of a chiropractic thing that's entirely too much to explain here, but rest assured, it's not just chiropractic. Traditional medicine has its share of wackadoodles and hardliners, too. There was, however, an actual support staff and an insurance manager. It was perfect, and the job was mine. It was just the change I needed. I even made it through a whole day without envisioning my own stupid death. When Darren got back that night, I was bubbling over with the details. It's perfect. I can start as soon as I'm ready. It's a 60-40 split, and he will include me on all of his advertising. He wants me to get up to speed on his technique so I can cover his patients when he's out of the office. The office has everything, and it's stable, and he's not much older than we are. Like I said, it's perfect. I practically had to cover my mouth with my hand to give him a moment to respond. A 60-40 split? He wants 40%, Darren said, wrinkling up his forehead. Yes, can you believe it? I responded excitedly. That's a lot, he said flatly. Is he married? Yes, I said with a slightly less excited tone. Why? Did he say why he wanted to hire you? His tone was shifting towards cynicism. He said he thought I was perfect for the job. He was impressed with my CV. He wants a female doctor to balance out his office. He liked my technique. I listed off easily. I bet he did, Darren said with contempt. Excuse me? shot back incredulously. Darren refused to look at me. You can keep looking, he said, as though it was the obvious final word on the matter. My enthusiasm drained out into the ether, leaving a black hole in the middle of my chest. What? I said. Why? Sounds to me like he wants to pimp you out and then get some for himself on the side. You can't take that job, sorry. He spoke as if that was the end of it. Charlene had been at the sink the entire time, listening to the whole thing. She almost looked like she was struggling with it. I could see it on her face. She puffed up with pride as her son asserted himself, and then recoiled as she realized that we wouldn't be moving out. So, you're telling me that I should turn down a perfectly good job offer because you're jealous, I spat back. My composure was slipping away. I'm not jealous. You're just being intentionally dumb about it. I know exactly what that guy is thinking, and this argument is mute. You aren't taking that job. The arrogance was dripping off of him like sweat. Do you mean moot? I said, trying to control my attitude. 
It's mute, and yes, I mean it's mute. There's no point. You're not taking that job, he said pompously. Charlene beamed a little more as she pretended she wasn't listening. The word is moot, I said forcefully, and my point is definitely not moot, nor is it mute for that matter. I'm not arguing about this, he said, and the correct word is mute. God, why do you have to act like you're right all of the time? Because I'm right! Look it up, I said defiantly. I was totally deflated. I will, and I can prove it, Darren bellowed as he stormed out of the room. Without thinking, I said, Oh my God, can you believe this? Charlene paused her work at the counter, and instantly I wished I could take my words back. Yes, she said confidently. I am sure he has his reasons. She turned and leaned up against the kitchen counter. You're married. You have to honor your husband. I thought I heard a hint of remorse buried somewhere in her words, but it was only for a second. She stared at me for a moment longer before turning back around to face the sink. The truth of her words hit me. She was right. We were married, and I would be dealing with his reaction to my choices either way. All of my excitement was gone. If I took the job, it would be a daily struggle with Darren for who knew how long, which would make the situation unbearable. If I didn't, I would be passing up a fantastic opportunity, and those didn't come around every day. All of the hope drained out of me, and my old friend, disappointment, started seeping back in through the black hole in my chest. If there was a way for this to work out, well, I couldn't see it. Darren came back in the room looking irritated and sat down at the table. I looked at him expectantly. So, I said. What, he replied flatly. I waited. He said nothing. What did you find out, I asked. Or is the point moot? I glared at him. You're not taking that job, he said defiantly. Dinner's ready, his mother cut in before I could respond. Darren, set the table. He never talked about it with me again. I tried to postpone my decision, hoping that I could find a way to take the job and keep Darren happy. But the job wouldn't wait. The doctor gave it to his second choice when I seemed indecisive. My day mares came back the very next day. I envisioned death by stupidity any time I was around running water. In the shower, making coffee, watering the tomato garden, and, of course, every time it rained. In retrospect, it would have made more sense to envision drowning myself in the pool or hurling myself off a bridge into the Allegheny River. I guess my brain was making an artistic statement about my own ineptitude. Maybe my brain knew that I really didn't want to die and was simply refusing to provide me with any legitimate options to consider. And at least my mind wasn't killing off anybody else. Yet. <laughs> 